Hello again, listeners. We're here to slake your unholy interview thirst for a second time in this foul season, this disgusting pre-autumn quagmire that calendar scientists call summer. This time, we're talking to horror filmmaker Brandon Cronenberg, the writer and director of the wonderfully disturbed films Antiviral, Possessor, and Infinity Pool. Now, a note, this is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if that's something you care about, consider watching the movies before you dive into this interview. Once again, these interviews would not be possible without the support of our patrons on Patreon, so thank you. And if you enjoy our work, consider signing up. You'll get access to the ad-free RSS, bonus stories, behind-the-scenes discussions for every episode, and other such tangibles. But now, without further ado, here's Brandon Cronenberg. Hello, I'm Jacob Duarte Spiel. And I'm Alexander Saxton. And we've caught a live one today in our cursed audio trap, our interview snare. He's the writer and director of three of the best and most original horror films of the 21st century, Antiviral, Possessor, and most recently, Infinity Pool. That's right. It's Brandon Cronenberg. Brandon, how are you? I'm good, although that that introduction was way more sinister than, than I was. I didn't realize I'd been snared. <laughs> I'm now super concerned. Uh, but maybe you're snared, you're caught, you're trapped. <laughs> it's a lie. Only exists within the frame of this Zoom call. <laughs> Will I ever get out? I don't know. Yeah. Alexander, you were talking about bed bugs earlier. Do you want to bring that up? Uh, we had them. Maybe we got them. I don't know. Everything. My apartment is destroyed. My life is in shambles. Um, I'm going to walk into the lake after this interview. Uh, and even in death, I will never be clean. Amazing. End uh, of preamble. That's that's what I got. <laughs> I, and I am doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, Brandon, uh, I, I wanted to start with a question uh, about your movies, uh, about horror craft, uh, and the way different artists approach horror. Uh, your films just, they, they basically contain no jump scares or anything even similar to a jump scare. And instead, I, I find myself overcome with a feeling of dread uh, that builds for the almost the entire duration of the film. That's a compliment. Is there a creative philosophy around how you approach that, how you approach the craft of horror, how you approach the craft of making something scary? It's not necessarily a conscious thing. I mean, to to a certain extent, I think there there are kind of two ways to approach art or or certainly film. Uh, One is you're trying to make the most money possible. So you make a film that you think people will pay for, you know, and the uh, prevalence of jump scares in horror comes from that. There's a, there's a sort of direct uh, parallel between more jump scares and more money because people like that and that, you know, gets your heart rate up. You feel like you've had this this terrifying experience. And so I think a lot of commercial mm-hmm. horror has has found that jump scares are really the, the way to uh, take money from children, essentially. Um, not I'm not, <laughs> not trying to be condescending if, if people like jump scares. Um, it, the other way is to, to try to make a film that you yourself feel you might appreciate as an audience member and to, and to, to kind of approach it uh, more from an art perspective uh, first. It's always a bit funny with film because the it, it's such a you have to engage with the industry industry side of it. It's not like a novel where you can just write it and, and have no financing going into it. You need to you still need to care about, mm-hmm. about commerce, um, but you can take a kind of more personal uh artistic approach i guess you know whatever yeah i guess the the slow dread kind of horror is something that i appreciate as an audience member and i drink too much coffee to really enjoy jump scares uh (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's can i I immediately derail us and and ask a follow-up about about how you actually do that how you actually find uh people on the commercial side of things that you can work with, who will respect the vision, how you build those relationships, how you find them? Yeah, sure. It, I mean, in my case, it, it's sort of trial and error. I, I recently had someone describe working with new producers as a, a blind date, and I thought that was mm-hmm. apt. You know, you go in with someone uh, you've never worked with before, and you're incredibly vulnerable because they really have a lot of control over and influence over the the outcome of, of your film. Um, they can do huge damage to your work, or they can really support it. And, and you, mm-hmm. 
begin going in blind and then you develop relationships. And if you find people you trust, and it's the same with crew, it's the same with cast. You find people you trust, you really cling to them because uh, the, it doesn't matter what people say in film. It, you know, people will say all the best things. It really comes down to, to actions and then developing those relationships in a kind of pragmatic way. So, um, yeah, I mean, I found, for instance, uh, I mean, I have producers who I know well in Canada who, who I work with, who I'm close to and have, have these uh, histories with. So I feel like I've got the Canadian producer thing locked down, you know, pretty well. Um, Neon put out my past mm -hmm. two films in, in the U.S. and they've been hugely supportive and, and great. And, they're, you know, they're, they're one of those companies that really has, you know, along with A24 and a, a few other distributors, practice certain code. I think they're they're fulfilling a very important need in the film world right, right now, which is releasing films mm -hmm. that are uh, unconventional, but have commercial value, you know, they're like they're, the mid, yeah. yeah, the mid level, like independent or or mid level film that uh, no longer really gets made because a lot of those production companies and distributors don't exist anymore, or mm -hmm. have been swallowed up by mm -hmm. Disney, Discovery, whoever. Yeah, which, but I mean, it's it's interesting because people say that they don't get made, and that sort of is true. I mean, the you know the people aren't making eight and a half anymore, and like you're you know you're not like mm -hmm. uh, you're not getting free reign on a fifty million dollar film to do some sort of crazy art art film. But you know, the, the companies like the ones I've mentioned are supporting. They're they're not micro budget films. They're supporting pretty artistic uh, films, pretty uh, pretty interesting films, especially in the genre space. And so it's actually, yeah, you you can get get into a miserable mindset and and you know say oh it's just superhero films and sequels and and that's it. And the film industry is a, a burning ship, but it isn't really. There's some amazing stuff that's going on in in genre in particular. No, that's true, and I don't mean to so make it. I don't make it to sound. I don't mean to make it sound like those things aren't getting made. It's more that I guess the distribution model looks different, and maybe they don't get uh, as long of a theater run. So they they show up in other places, but um, you know, you yeah, it's the the marketplace, the 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 big players have gotten larger, and and the medium sized players have stayed the same size. So it feels like there's a there's a domination, but in reality, it's exactly like you said. Those things are still getting made. Yeah, but that, yeah, that is that is true. You you don't, you don't have a huge theatrical run if you're doing a, a sort of weirdo indie thing. I was gonna say, so uh, you you haven't you haven't signed up to do one of uh, Mattel's uh, fifty four films that they've got coming out in the next uh, half decade. I mean, they just haven't called me yet. I'm waiting. <laughs> you're ready to sell out. I'm waiting for the yep. Mattel Cinematic Universe. The first opportunity to just just make a tiny bit of money and just retire. <laughs> so eager to sell out. <laughs> <laughs> on on the on the subject of uh visual style you were talking about before about like you know i think what's really interesting is you sort of encapsulated also not to make this interview about ourselves but why we make this podcast which is that we can have control and do this the exact way that we want to uh one of the wonderful things about making an audio drama or an audio pot or audio fiction is uh, the cost to make it sound professional is so much lower than the cost to make a film look professional, where you have you have to pay for so much uh, post production and all of that. Um, but with your film, one of the things that always blows me away about your films, especially if in Infinity Pool and Possessor, you have these mm -hmm. really incredible and original visual sequences. In Possessor, you know, there's this moment where Voss dissolves into into uh, the body that she's possessing um yeah chris abbott's body uh and infinity pool i'm thinking of the drug fueled hallucinations how do you you know figure out these complex visual languages and approach just creating that effect so it's it's a very collaborative kind of hands-on process um usually in in my scripts now i'll i'll write a sort of vague paragraph that says something like, you know, there are flashes of nightmare imagery, the image deforms, it's a whatever, yada, yada, yada. And my team now sort of understands that's code for we're going to undertake this extremely long process of experimentation mm -hmm. and, and figure, sort of figure out this sequence almost as, as a kind of experimental mm -hmm. short film. And this is something uh, I started with Kareem Hussein, my cinematographer, um, 
when we were developing Possessor, Possessor was in development for many, many years. I mean, it kept on nearly being financed and then falling apart. It would fall apart four times per year sometimes. Mm. It's an eight-year gap between my first film and my second film. And so Reem and I spent a huge amount of time just messing with visual ideas we had. You know, how can you, uh, in, in a practical way, upset the usual image capturing process? How, you know, shooting through gels with colored lights flaring off the gel so you're getting a kind of color distortion you know monochrome or or monochrome with red with a, a kind of yellow thing experiment we had made a short film called please be continuously and describe your experiences as they come to you which was a kind of uh it was a film in and of itself but it was a way to start using those ideas in the context of an actual movie because Possessor had fallen apart for you know, whatever the 30th time and we were just eager to eager to make something. So basically it often starts with Kareem. Uh, the two of us will brainstorm ideas for how you can deform an image. Then we'll spend months and months just in his living room playing with projectors, with gels, with lighting, with any substances and, and weird lenses that we can uh, put together, filters and figure out how to create an image. And, and that sort of uh, becomes eventually a bit of a, a camera effects palette. Like in Infinity Pool, we started playing with dichroic film and dichroic glass. And, and that dichroic film, uh, depending on the angle that you look through it, it's a different color. And so that oh. became mm -hmm. key to that sort of rainbow uh, colored effect that, that, that exists in a lot of those. Sequences. So that's not that's not like a, that's not a CGI effect that you put on afterward. It's not a filter. It's something this is that's all happening. analog. Oh yeah, there's not a frame of CGI in all in any of the sequences in in, wow. in or or in in the orgy. There was we had to paint out uh, a bit of tape on the actors' bodies in two shots. Oh. <laughs> Otherwise, it's totally it was totally um, practical. Wait, so, what? <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. Excuse me. This was all yeah. practical. Yeah, yeah, no, no. We, I mean, that's that's the sort of fun that we make for ourselves. So, we 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 built this this storehouse of practical ideas. Then we brought on Dan Martin, who's our, our makeup effects uh, artist, and so he he once Dan's on, we're talking about puppets. We're talking about this sort of you know uh, weird weird body stuff. This this sort of you know pooing nipple and and so I mean, on i hate it i hated the pooing nipple <laughs> but like, this is, <laughs> but like nipple. this is where like okay so i when we i watched i, I was said out loud lucky. i hated that everyone hates it i was i loved it but i was i was lucky enough to i got to watch infinity pool i got to watch like the extended unrated cut i don't know if the, what they called it but the extended longer version i got to watch it at playhouse cinema which by the way when i, wa I rewatched antiviral and i noticed uh that you shot on like sherman and barton one shot or like there's like one shot where like caleb landry jones is pulled out and i don't know if you've been like to playhouse at Ham in hamilton but it's like like two minutes up the street from there is this oh, really? now this like wonderful rep theater and they played infinity pool i got to see it it was amazing uh, people were laughing at really uncomfortable moments, which is the best, <laughs> like exactly what I was hoping. Uh, Cause I'd seen your other movies. I was very much hoping for that, but there's like the pooing nipple. There's like this, these seamless transitions from nipple, penis, vulva, breast. Like you've got like something that looks like a vulva and then something comes out of it. It looked like, and I, I was sitting there and I, I talked, I turned to my partner after and I was like, this reminded me so much of, do you remember in 2015, there was deep dream this like Google thing. Uh, it was oh, like yeah, Google, yeah. You remember that this Google AI thing and it would find like you'd, you'd run like a like a video through it and it would it would morph it and turn it into this hallucinogenic thing. Right, saying, everything's like, a dog that kind of everything's a dog and everything is eyes is right. really what it ended up being. Yeah, exactly. And I was just sitting there I was like, did they use like, is this like the first time I've ever seen someone use AI like responsibly to get a creative actual creative output? And now you're telling me that this was all just just analog the opposite. Oh yeah, it was really. It was just a really long, <laughs> a really long process of analog fucking. That's around. incredible. Um, Dan, well, thank. I'm glad. <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's just like... if, at the end, at the end of the day, you know, it, maybe it's just you know fun for ourselves. I, I, I hope it, it should has be. Its sort of, it has its own sort of quality that like makes it worthwhile. But I think so. Okay, just to to finish the thought, 
Dan, so Dan Dan builds the puppets uh, on Infinity Pool. We had Zosha McKenzie, our production designer, who would build. Uh, you know, she built like elaborate mirror boxes. We got really into different types of glass, and so for instance, she built a uh, a mirror box that has two way a two way mirror on the front, so you can shoot through it without getting seeing the camera reflected, and then smart glass on the back, so you could have this pinwheel of Titan tubes, like colored lights, where you would just see the lights floating there rather than the rig that's holding the lights. And so they would bounce around. Uh, mm -hmm. Dan worked with a filmmaker, Lee Hardcastle, on stop motion. So they did some stop motion sequences in, in leads and then sent those to us. And then Lee Hardcastle, he did uh, Thingu, the Pingu thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lee, you know, yeah, Lee, the Lee Hardcastle. Yeah, uh, we were very, very lucky to <laughs> very lucky to have uh, to have him. We rephoto, so we shoot all the stuff. We then shoot it through gels and stuff, and rephoto, like we project it and then rephotograph it a million times so that we can cut through different layers. Like you have the same shot that is. Uh, you're shooting it through one type of glass, distorting it one way, then you shoot it six more times in different forms of distortion, line those up and edit them so that they're synced so you can cut through different types of distortion. And then my editor, James Vandewater on Infinity Pool or mm -hmm. Matt Hanna on Possessor uh, undertake these incredibly uh, long and aggravating, I, I think. I mean, they're, they're very polite about it, but it's, it's, a, it's a really long process of the two of us just sitting in a room being like, Okay, what if you put this frame next? It's sort of it's almost like stop motion, and there's a kind of alchemy, especially for infinity pool. You know, you put three single frames together, and the order that you put them in really changes what image pops for you. And so there's a lot of just yeah. okay, we put this dancing person, weird penis puppet, and then like just drop of colored water. What happens if you switch the order? And so it was just weeks and weeks of uh, messing around. Is this a philosophical decision? Is this like a budgetary consideration? Because it, it really does, you you can see imagery kind of like this in a lot of movies, but but you watch it in Possessor, you watch it in, in Infinity Pool, and there's something particularly upsetting about it. And, and and I think that comes from the fact that it's real. Is this is this why you're doing it? Is this just sort of like an accidental benefit that comes from like, well, we can't afford a CG studio, so we're doing this mechanically? How does this where does this come from? Is it emergent? Is it by design? So, so it's two. It's two things. One is I like the effect. I, I think you can't quite get the same thing out of CGI, and that's not. It's not that I think people shouldn't use CGI. It's not that I think CGI is inherently worse. It's just a different effect. You can't like this kind of analog stuff. This particular thing that we do, you can't. It's like so random and dependent on just the angle of the gel. You, you know. You, uh, and when it comes to the puppets also, there's a certain weight to them that, as you say, I think a lot of people respond to, uh, even, even if they don't consciously know why they're responding to it. If you mm -hmm. have a CGI blade and, and CGI blood, you know, that frees you up to do, I'm not saying you should never do that. It frees you up. You know, if, if you're making John Wick and you want to have yeah. a really long runner action sequence, you need to do that stuff because you can't. Uh, you can't have people running around with with pumps and and with prosthetics all over them. Like mm -hmm. that's a, that's a filmmaking decision, but I think it has a different kind of weight to it that I like when when it's when it's practical. I think there, there's a there's something to uh, this effect that works for me. Um, the other thing is it's a it's a process uh, process question because often you know with Kareem especially because we work so long together we'll be trying something and then it won't work the way we thought it was going to work and we'll stumble onto some other aesthetic thing accidentally and that'll lead us down this path and so having a hands-on a hands-on hands process like that where it's just Kareem and I fucking around for for months and, and messing with stuff it's just you stumble onto this really interesting stuff that then gets you excited and then that starts to define the aesthetic of the film mm -hmm. if you're uh, you know, at, at least for me, I'm not a VFX artist. So uh, doing it that way would be like saying, okay, I want an acid trip that has this, this, this. Can you sort uh -huh. of do something like that? And you're kind of removed from the process, mm -hmm. uh, which again, it's not, I'm not saying that's the wrong way to do it. But for me, I really like all the happy accidents that come from mm -hmm. actually just grabbing gels and you know messing around for, for all that time.
if it's VFX, it's it's coming from someone's preconceived idea of what that acid trip looks like rather than being a, a reflection of something real in the world that you've created. Yeah, it's almost yeah. too easy. Well, <laughs> it's definitely easier, uh, you know, and maybe this process is stupid. I don't know. But it's like in, you know, in shooting through uh, diopters, say, and gels, like, you know, I, maybe I'm going to get too old for it soon. But, you know, Kareem and I would pull 16, 18 hour days in his living room rephotographing the stuff. And the downside is that's, you know, mind fuckingly long and, and crazy and horrible. The, the upside is I some of the distortion is just my fingers in front of the glass wiggling. And, you know, so if I want I as I'm wiggling <laughs> the glass and sticking my finger in front of it and the gel the, and through the gel, the actor's face deforms in this way where I really like uh, like the image real time. I can just lean into that and explore that in, in a literally hands on sense. And so it gives me more control and but, I'm control free. I mean, the other upside is like, do you like doing this? Yeah, I mean, the, there's the know, upside. <laughs> I, I think if we on a longer schedule, I would maybe like do it over several weekends instead yeah. of, you know, it, it's a bit it's a bit of a crazy marathon. Uh, but yeah, it's deeply satisfying. And, and the process is obviously part of it. You need to enjoy what you're doing. Yeah, like, I, I mean, I think what I'm hearing and I think is really interesting is people talk a lot about the auteur filmmakers. They, they talk a lot about, you know, Scorsese, for example. And then the thing that is not as known is that most of the time when you think of an auteur, what you're really thinking of is, is a person who has surrounded themselves with a team that they go to work with every day. You know, like Scorsese was at like 50 years with with Thelma Shoemaker. I might be saying her name wrong, but like his editor, he's been working with her since the 70s, I believe. And if that's like if that's what gets you up in the morning and excited to go to work in any job, in any career. I mean, that's like it's all it's all the everything is all in some ways the business of people. Right. Like you want to you want to work with who you want to work with. You want to spend your days with who you want to spend your days with. You want to wiggle your fingers in front of gels for 16 hours with your friend. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. No, no, absolutely. I mean, film is, it's a deeply collaborative art form and, and you can, you know, people have different opinions about tour theory. I, I think, you know, it makes sense up to a point. Yeah. Sure. Some filmmakers do sort of have this kind of like void over the course of their career. You can say, okay, this person has a sort of uh, recognizable voice. This other person is just doing whatever, for each different film, but whether, you know, in reality, you're, you're working with these people and they're, they're contributing their art in very significant ways. It's, it's no, you know, you can call a director or no tour, but they're not doing it themselves. I mean, they're no. doing it with, with these people who are contributing huge uh, amounts of work and, and artistry to, to the film. Moving from, uh, from gels to, to the gel of human thought. Mm. Um, I like that. I, I want to talk about, 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 class in your film because i think that there's something really interesting uh going on where th there's the genre of sort of like terrible things happening to rich people on vacation hmm. like you know your triangle of sadness your white lotus large parts of succession and infinity pool seems like it's going to fit into this genre except the main character in infinity pool is, is not actually a rich person he's like a barista who married into a rich family you know i think there's a, a, a similar thing going on in, in possessor where you know it's about this this kind of middle class woman who's sort of being groomed for for entry into into like the ownership class. Like Gerda wants her to be the heir, um, and, and I think these are both interesting stories because they're stories about the ultra rich that are actually stories about about people more like you and I, people who are sort of in the creative field, uh, or or people who are sort of up jumped actors and artists and baristas and petty cocaine dealers. Um, and I, I want to ask about There's um, nothing petty how about you... cocaine dealing. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that a big cocaine? Peep, peep, peep. He's a he is a giant. He's a giant. He's a fucking giant. Uh, he says so himself. Um, but yeah, like, how do you how do you tell a story about class without it turning into a sort of simple morality tale i you know i guess it's a sort of a question of having a bunch of other stuff going on you know i, I think my impulse towards those stories is less purely class-based and more about 
the fact that we tend to get caught up in these uh you know these significant currents that are way that are completely beyond our control and we get absorbed by mm -hmm. them you know mm -hmm. and often those currents are defined by uh you know not just wealthy people but say corporations but you know by these, these entities that really uh shape our world and 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 therefore shape us and shape our thought and shape our behavior and and so i think yeah, it's it's interesting because uh, I I've gotten a lot of questions about that doing press for Infinity Pool specifically because it did come out in, in at this time when a, a bunch of uh, films and shows with that with that theme were really landing. You make, uh, you know, there's there's such a lead up to uh, such a long development period that I, I I definitely wasn't intending to be part of this wave of shows and TV that were dealing with the same subject matter. It was just sort of a, a coincidence. I think people are responding to that stuff because the economy is fucked and everybody is worried about it. But also the stories are kind of perennial, you know, you do stories in film, I mean, class uh, satire, it, it, you, you see it throughout the history of the, the medium and, and any storytelling media. Um, but I think, you know, with some of that stuff, I think it's just the, it, like Triangle of Sadness, you know, nothing against it, but it, it's written with just that in mind you know it's specifically yeah. about mm -hmm. that um i think when i'm writing it's less that i'm just trying to hammer home that one point which i think other people are making just fine and, and which i think is sort of self-evident and it's more that that is uh a, a fact of the world and the environment that is leading to mm -hmm. these other kinds of mutations and you know so much of infinity pool is is about uh, and mutations, I mean, sort of psychological and social mutations. Yeah. Um, so much of Infinity Pool is a, also about just identity, what it is to be a, a single entity throughout time that is identical to yourself. You know, it's about James's personal journey. The, the, it's about getting older and, and failing and personal vanity and all this stuff. So I think for me, it's, you know, maybe it's not something I'm doing deliberately, but it's uh, I, th I think in answer to your question, the way to do it is you make something that is about a bunch of different stuff in that context, rather than just trying to hammer home one point, which it, again, I, nothing wrong with, I don't think yeah. wrong with just <laughs> trying to hammer home that one point. I just think it's sort of, uh, to me, it's too self-evident to only want to make a story about that. It's fun to make art. That's about a bunch yeah. of things. Yeah. And uh, to me, like watching Infinity Pool, the thing that always that, that strikes me a lot about that film and all of your films is is the relationship that the characters have to their work and how work their work relates to their identity and how often, you know, in, in watching Infinity Pool, the thing that I'm struck by by the ending is that you have Skarsgård, this character that's essentially throughout the entire film and possibly throughout his entire life has always made the easiest choice available to him. And at the end of the film, he doesn't really have an identity because the the choices are like there are no choices except to sit in the rain. Like he's just sitting there. <laughs> and it, like the way that I was uh, when I was talking to my partner, I had a pretty good quip, I thought. Uh, but I said, uh, you know, at the end of the movie, there's more of him than there's ever been because of the and also less like there's right, and right. also nothing. <laughs> and it's a very it's a really interesting way to. Uh, uh, yeah. Like watching Possessor and just being like. Yeah, like you take it one day, you take a job, and then like three weeks later, you're like working at the murder factory. Like it's just <laughs> like you, you you don't control the current; the current controls you. And unless you're really willing to make the hard choices to get out, and are really willing to like take those hard looks at yourself, you just won't. You'll just do. You'll just like run back to comfort, like all of the like all the characters seemingly consistently do in your films. For sure. And and also, it's only going to get worse. I mean, not to, not to make this about AI suddenly, but yeah. um, but it's I mean, it's very interesting because we uh, this is not an original point. This is something that a lot of people have been, uh, you know, talking about more, uh, more articulately than me for, for years now. But as we uh, are online and and are influenced by social media. There's there's this sense of the human being as being something that's hackable. You know, are are in, in totally insidious ways that we don't uh, 
we can feel that we can defend against because we're all so smart and self-aware, but none of us are, are, are self-aware enough because the Russian troll farm has made this Facebook persona that has influenced a family member of a close friend who's now adopted that belief. And now you're listening to them and you're thinking, hey, those ideas make a lot of sense. And so I think that's a, a, a valid concern. I'm, I'm not, you know, I think AI is sort of amazing in, in some ways. I'm not against it across the board, but I, I do think uh, a valid concern is that when you plug that into social media, the ability for uh, this technology to learn you in a in a more complete and detailed and nuanced way and therefore uh, manipulate your own thoughts and, and therefore your own behavior is going to be amplified in, in this really extreme way. And so, it, yeah, I think some of maybe some of my anxiety that, that creeps into to my films is just that we're, we're living in that kind of world where it's, it's hard to uh, I mean, I don't think I don't think will is ever totally self-generated i think we're always reacting yeah. to things i think our, our ideas we're sort of claiming our ideas after they've been made and and you know <laughs> ideas are kind of viral and, and values are kind of viral and, and I, I think it's 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 never that these things are pure and not influenced by our environment but i think the ability to be uh sculpted in really new nuanced uh ways by forces beyond our control is, is one of the things that's kind of defining our our era right now. Yeah, it, it, I think there's like this philosophical concept as well. I was reading um, this book by Mary Midgley called Wicked, where she talks about the idea, uh, basically, why do people do bad things? And there's a, a sort of point that's made throughout the book in a few different areas. But it's the basic idea that, um, you know, if, if you accept something a priori, or you claim something a priori about yourself, like I can't be influenced, I'm too smart to be influenced, then you stop asking the question, am I being influenced? Am I being pushed into certain ideas? And once that happens, it's game over. Like, mm -hmm. you, you, like you, will, you will get grabbed by the deep fake video of Obama saying he's gonna kill your kid. You will get like snaked up in that stuff. It's just gonna happen. Yeah, and, and that's, I think most of us have like take that as a default position even if we claim not to to a certain yeah. degree because there, there it's just a function of the brain to sort of claim ownership over actions and and thoughts i i don't think uh, you know this, not to get too abstract here but I, I don't think there is i don't think there is this sort of coherent self you know the behind it all uh that is just this sort of yeah. one coherent entity and that's who we are in any kind of pure way we're just a chorus of impulses and uh, and thoughts that are often conflicting and uh, often come from outside of us. And yeah, we're human relationships and also relationships to machines, tools, things like that. Yeah, we're sort of you know collective fictions in a way. We make ourselves up. We 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 make ourselves up kind of after the fact. We, it, it, there's an actual sort of apparently there's a sort of neuro <laughs> neuroscience basis to this you you act and then your brain decides if you were the one responsible for that and then if you are it says oh yeah i did that um which when i was researching possessor there's all this really interesting stuff about uh this the, the scientist dr jose delgado who uh in the in the 50s and 60s um, built these brain implants these stimosievers and it, it was sort of the, the wild west for neuroscience um, he, in the film, there's a shot of a bull being controlled by this guy in a bull ring. That's this a famous experiment the scientist did. Oh, wow. But the really interesting thing is, you know, I mean, it was completely ethically dubious because he was using uh, psychiatric patients, uh, but he would implant uh, implant this thing called a stimosiever in their head. There would be a wire that would stimulate a, remotely a particular part of the brain. And what they found was in... Uh, when stimulating the motor cortex, they could control, say, open and close someone's hand, open and uh, change their uh, how how open their iris is, um, that kind of thing. But the person would understand that it was being done to them. They they would try to resist, and they wouldn't be able to uh, hmm. resist opening and closing their hand. And there was some famous quote where the patient said, "Well, doctor, I see your electricity is stronger than my will." You know, they they would understand that they were being controlled physically. But put the wire in a different part of the brain. There, there was an there was an experiment where every time the experimenter hit a button, 
the patient would get up, walk around uh, their chair, and then sit back down. Every single time, it would just stimulate this part of the brain that would cause them to to do that one uh, series mm -hmm. of movements. But every time they did it, they then made up a justification for why they had done it. They'd say, oh, I just heard a sound and I wanted to check it out. Oh, I was looking for my shoes. And so it, because of the particular point in the brain that they were stimulating, uh, they were retroactively taking ownership of that action mm. and saying, oh yeah, it was mm. even, it was ludicrous because they were doing the same thing over and over again. It was a different uh, motivation each time, but they were just assuming that they had done it and making up after the fact a reason. And that's just how the brain works on a certain yeah. level. So that's why this this kind of stuff is so uh, is so effective because you can implant an idea in someone and they will, by virtue of how their brain their brain works, take ownership of it and and that will become who they are and what they think. You know, it's it's uh, yeah, fascinating but terrifying. Chilling, <laughs> chilling. Yeah. Hate it. Absolutely uh, hate it. I was. This is actually a good. Alexander, did you want to? Uh, you had a question about Ballard. Yeah. So uh, when when Jacob first put me onto infinity pool is when we were both reading high rise by by ballard right uh, and he was talking about how this movie felt so much uh like that um and and, and you've talked in other interviews about how ballard is a, a strong influence on your work um and yeah this may be like a, a good segue into the sort of like mid-century science sort of that same time period where where he's working uh, a lot of his work is sort of fixated on this sort of like horrible mk ultra science that the american government and, and, and private institutions are doing at that time um yeah like wh wh why why do you think ballard is is such an important writer now 60 years after his heyday i i i guess like any good science fiction writer although obviously he didn't write just science fiction he was just on to stuff that then became reality everything <laughs> you know like a like I love high rise when I was, but when I was, uh, writing infinity pool, I was reading a lot of the, the sort of later novels that he wrote. He wrote the series of novels, including Supercan and, and cocaine nights. And then, um, all, they all have this theme of, you know, a gated community, rich people in, in mm -hmm. this, in this sort of response, responsibility, free consequence, free environment who are then going, going crazy and, you know, committing crimes and, um but super can which i'm now I actually a, a producer i know got the rights and i'm trying to make it into a a, a limited series you know hope, hopefully it'll happen um but that that novel was written in i think 2000 2001 or it came out in 2000 2001 and it just it could not be more relevant right now like it completely mm -hmm. predicted essentially tech company campuses, it, it, you know, the, the conflict and uh, immigration conflict in, in Europe and, and you know, the sort of new invasive culture of private companies taking over these areas and, and creating their own uh, culture, uh, populist, <laughs> populist politicians and, and the sort of like, you know, fascist current that we're seeing now. It's all in it's all in that book. But 20 years before it fully exploded in, in a way that we're seeing now. So I think, you know, he, there's a timeless quality to his work uh, as well, which is uh, interesting. It's, it's not, it's not dependent on a lot of dated technology. It, yeah. it's, really, it's really about old human themes and, and just the way that we work and psychology. Continue. Yeah, exactly. Alienation. Um, but, but he does then, you know, he, there, there was maybe a, a particular focus on machinery that's a little bit less relevant now you know the cars and planes still a, a thing but maybe our concerns are more uh computer based now but uh the psychology is still relevant and some and the, the social studies and his work are still relevant mm -hmm. there's uh now now that you've mentioned that you're trying to adapt supercan is that the one yeah yeah, super can. I, I just find it very interesting that um, you know, and uh, obviously your 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 father is a is a Ballard fan as well. You know, did his own adaptation of, of Crash, and it, it kind of brings to mind, I think, a, a sort of funny image, which is you know, it's not really dinner time conversation most of Ballard's work, but is that 
like is this something that did you grow up reading this stuff together like did you come to it later these bedtime like, stories yeah were these you? Your... <laughs> is this like phantom toll booth phantom toll booth yes that <laughs> i love the phantom <laughs> it's a great book <laughs> that was one of my favorite books as a kid. it's so good um no i mean i i came to him sort of later i i didn't really read ballard until um in my 20s and then got really got really into his stuff i mean there, yeah i mean there's some there there's some authors who I guess my father was into, who I absorbed, like Philip K. Dick. I, I yeah. read K. Dick all throughout my uh, my teens, and he's had a huge influence on me. Um, and that was, you know, I, my father gave me a copy of Ubik, and so it was sort of that that kind of set me off. Um, Ballard, I didn't come to later. I didn't meet him once. I didn't really. I wasn't, you know, Crash was made when I was fourteen. I wasn't. Yeah. Set or, or doing anything. I met Ballard once years later um, in London briefly, but yeah, sort of. I sort of stumbled into his writing a bit later on, actually. Oh, that's it's it's yeah, it's very interesting the the way that like uh, you know you sort of build up influences over time. Like it's interesting to hear like Philip K. Dick to Ballard because I feel like Philip K. Dick is a really interesting author because he's a very aware person of certain things and then also very unaware in a lot of other ways. Uh, and then I feel like the things that he's unaware of are the things that Ballard is really aware of. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, I I also, uh, we, we wanted to ask about just antiviral and infinity pool. And I would even say possessor at times. They're just like very funny films. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I just, what's the relationship that you see between comedy and horror and, and, and or just your approach to comedy. Yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that question. They are definitely intended to be funny, although not everybody agrees. I remember a journalist almost get, getting into a physical fight with me on the antiviral press tour where he, well, <laughs> maybe an exaggeration, but I was insisting that it was a comedy and he was so mad at me for trying to say it was a comedy because I guess he was like disturbed by it. And he was like, it's not funny. It's not funny. I was like, all right. It's, it's pretty funny. It's very funny. funny. I don't know. Possessor, <laughs> um, I'll say, I that that feels more like a tragedy to me. That feels like a very like I saw Possessor and I thought, okay, here's here's like comedy, tragedy, comedy. He's doing the Coen Brothers thing. But do, do you see Possessor as a comedy? Still meant to be somewhat funny, I think. I mean, not, you know, not Infinity Pool more so probably. Um, it, with Infinity Pool, I was really worried uh, when we were editing it because it was intended to be obviously funny. We all thought the script worked as a, you know as a kind of comedy. Um, when you're editing at a certain point you're showing the film to friends and colleagues and, and trying to you know people who haven't read the script you you have screenings throughout the tail end of the editing process because you just the stuff you can't uh see anymore you, the stuff you, you don't know if something's working because you know the script too well you, you know you have to show it to people but no one laughed at all the only thing that got <laughs> laughs for some reason was the urns and the urns, like we didn't, <laughs> like we didn't, we didn't think the urns were. It's a very funny <laughs> moment. <laughs> I was like, okay, the urns, like it's okay, it's a bit of an easy joke. But the urns, the urns actually were kind of killing in that context. But nothing else, not a hint of laughter throughout the whole uh, film. And I was just like, we're fucked. Like, because if people don't think this is funny, <laughs> we're in such trouble. Um, were you ever tempted to put uh, for the, the final scene where he's sitting in the rain? Were you ever tempted to put the Curb Your Enthusiasm music over there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe maybe that would have been the way out. I wish I'd, I wish I'd thought of that. Um, or the Seinfeld bass. Yeah, boom, yeah. Boom, boom, yeah. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Anything, you know, Larry David inspired, for sure. Um, but yeah, in, at Sundance, though, we, uh, at the premiere, got laughs at the right spot. So early, early in that screening, I was like, okay, like you know, who, who knows how this film will do, but people are laughing at it. So we're, we're safe. I think the other thing enjoy. is like, it's, it's, it's also, it's a funny film, but that doesn't mean that you need to laugh at, at certain mo- Like, I think in the same way that the dread builds, there are moments where the comedy builds. And, and if you think about, you know, uh, big laugh moments as sort of the jump scares of the comedy world. I still feel like this is a very, I, I, I like, I was like laughing like nervously at certain points, but I was just sitting there just like, that's a really funny scene. Like that's like, I was just enjoying, I was just enjoying <laughs> where, the ride where she's like chasing him down the road on the hood of a car. Yeah. Yelling at him. Or like, you know, when he's strangling himself to death and you're just like, buddy, how did you <laughs> come to this? I just, <laughs> leave, I just, let this just leave. Come on. 
it's that's also an interesting thing just about the class question when i was looking up just ages ago I, I i was just thinking about this with infinity pool i looked up you know interviews to see and reviews to see people talking about it and people were really trying to shoehorn this into the like triangle of sadness mold by mentioning that Skarsgård's character was a like, once popular novelist and like the film explicitly in text he was not popular he was no. the book that he wrote did not do well and it's interesting that like I don't know if it was intentional on their part or if it like uh, on the part of the journalist or the reviewers, um, but it was just a very interesting to your point about, you know, are, are people being controlled by the currents or are they or do they have their own willpower? They're just getting swept along in this idea. It's like, well, he must have been popular. This must be a movie that's part of this thing. It's like, no, it's it's not. Right. Um, it's just it, it's interesting to. Yeah, just that moment where Mia like it's one of the biggest moments in the film. Mia Goth on the hood of the car talking about how his book sucked. <laughs> and 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 then the, it's like they've oh, it's like they've funny. removed it from their it's like they've removed it from their brain when they're writing the review or writing the the, the start the introduction to an interview it's it's a uh, it's surprising in that way yeah it's very i mean i won't rag on reviewers too much no but no no it's, 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 <laughs> yeah. but it, but you know but a lot of them are watching it, the film comes out at a film festival they're watching it as one of six films that they watched yeah. that day, they're like racing to get the review out the next day i don't know i don't know i mean some of them I've, I've had reviews or interviews where you're just like you're fully inventing things and i don't i can't tell yeah i can't tell how much this is malicious or how much this is just it's probably not malicious but um yeah it's ai generated least, it's at least careless about the fact well no truly i mean uh there's this new thing where if journalists are interviewing you, some of them have AIs that join them in the chat room and that's and they're transcribing oh. your interview, but they don't do it very well. And sometimes you read the article afterwards and you're like, I, you know, I know I'm an awkward interview, but like, I swear I'm not that bad. Like, it, it's just like, it's just like a series of sentences that make literally no grammatical sense. And it's, and it's you can sometimes see, okay, it, for, for sure misheard that word that would have been the actual word. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, I'm just, I don't know why I'm rambling about that. No, but. no, it's, it's just, it's <laughs> weird. It's like, there's this assumption that AI is, is better than it is. And then people are using it. It's like, it's a tool. It's like a hammer. You can use a hammer to hammer a nail. You can also use it to kill your best friend. Like AI is the same. Or like yourself. Just, or yourself. Or I like mean, your, it's, your it's, biological that's a tough clone. one. <laughs> yeah. Or your biological clone. I want to ask for me all of your films feel very canadian like you know possessor extremely filmed in toronto and hamilton like the, the the suburb where voss lives looks eerily like the place where my parents live in the suburbs of toronto um you know infinity pool a, a lot of these rich people have have accents that sound to me like very upper canadian you know posh accents mm -hmm. uh, is there is there like a, a particularly canadian spiritual disease that you think that you think you're exploring in your movies because i think there's like a different type of shitty rich person that is a, a canadian shitty rich person to an american shitty rich person and i think your movies kind of like get at something there and, I, and i'd love it if you just sort of give me give me a little freewheeling conversation about about <laughs> canada's spiritual illness well my but the most shocking review infinity pool got was i think the cbc reviewer i forget what the what the title was but it said you know it's infinity pools this 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 and this sort of complimenting it and then and also brackets unfortunately canadian and the review <laughs> the review seemed to be saying it's just you know this could have been a fun movie with no thought behind it but we as canadians have this thing where we feel like we have to insert ideas into films and therefore that's horrible and this is like and otherwise you hate to have ideas movie. and i'm just like this is the cbc you're saying that like <laughs> unfortunately this movie is too canadian because it has some like ideas in there and i was like that's um that we, we all wanted to get unfortunately canadian t-shirts after that review came out it was like it was kind of shocking that's not an answer to your question i just had to vent i feel like there's, there's... i appreciate that that's that's <laughs> that is a uh, holy wow and i was showing it to Dion because I was in the U.S. at the time, and they were like, whoa, what is wrong with your country? I was like, yeah, it's this self-loathing, <laughs> like, you could bend over backwards to find a way to label something Canadian so that you can hate it. 
I don't know how that fits into the answer to your question. I think, you know, it's not something I'm doing consciously, but I am absorbing dialogue from, you know, people I've met and, you know, people on television. And I, I don't know, you, you, you're such a product of your environment. And so often your characters are amalgamations of people you know people you heard talking in a cafe like you know sometimes it's just fascinating you go to a cafe to work and you just cannot believe the the, the human being yelling about something in front of you and you that just gets into your head and suddenly it becomes you know one scene with a with a character or, or something like that so um yeah i don't know i don't spend a lot of time in the us to be honest so i don't i it's hard for me to have a, a great perspective on Canadian rich versus U.S. rich, mm -hmm. but I think it's more through osmosis than a than a mm -hmm. calculated uh, attack on the Canadian rich specifically. I think like, about I get the impression that a lot of these a lot of these rich people who are doing murder tourism in in the former Soviet Union are like liberal party voters. Like they're people who are sort of think of themselves as being on the right side of history, kind of like progressive, and all this. Um, which feels very canadian to me right right yeah i don't know i, I don't know I, don't, I mean we have our own but you know we, we have a look at our look at our province i mean we we, we have we have a very right-wing conservative mm -hmm. uh side of, of canada that, that weirdly absorbed you know i remember the the marches in toronto during the pandemic there were people carrying trump flags and yeah signs, fuck mm -hmm. biden and i'm just like what <laughs> what who are you like you know but yeah. it's just we absorb that kind of american culture it become it's sort of uh you know talk about self-hating canadians i think that that sort of displaces our own culture because this this kind of uh you know whatever the cultural weight equivalent is of celebrity it's like you're exposed to it over and over again and suddenly you know your re your real problem is joe biden you know yeah <laughs> but those people exist here and, and that's you know we're not we're not better than that certainly no it's i mean it's a cultural cultural hegemony kind of thing and i think you, you end up in this interesting space where there's this assumption that american problems and american issues are also canadian issues and canadian problems and canadian themes as well and if you look at canada i think something that's interesting here is and we've talked about this in in a few episodes of wrong station but the idea that you know canada kind of thinks of itself as a as a place to be strip mined and like all of the resources like and and value needs to be extracted from this land and from the people and i feel like e in canada even even left-wing liberal-minded people are very aggressively like anti-art uh mm -hmm. in in a way that i think is really surprising and what you end up with is really like a a non-existent sort of um artist class or a very small condensed artist class in canada where you have people like yourself uh, or, or writers who are just, you know, just like successful people who, who who make art, who who exist off their art and produce things that entertain thousands upon thousands of people. And that value is is just kind of denigrated in Canada in a way that it is not in the United States. And maybe that's because, you you know, in the United States, you have a lot of people who are extremely wealthy, who do represent a part of that cultural current towards valuing the arts. But it doesn't really feel like it exists in Canada. In Canada, I mean, this is the thing that I really get from your movies. Canada just feels like a bunch of corporations, but none of them are. <laughs> but none of them are artistic. None right. of them are interested in the art even a little bit, and none of the people in those corporations are interested in the arts, uh, except as a property to be like strip mined. Like Antiviral is like the best example of it, where you've got like all of these people who are celebrities. You never know what any of them do, uh, which I think is a great little detail. But you got people buying like steaks made of their, you know, their cloned flesh or buying diseases that they had. And it's like even their bodies are not safe from being strip mined in that way. Sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. The Canadian art scene is weird because we don't, you know, we hate Canadian artists in a, in a way or, or we devalue them. I mean, you know, again, Canadian film is seen as, as a way of insulting a film. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's that's a kind of longstanding tradition. Um, in any Canadian artistic field, it's like you, no one will pay any attention to you here 
un unless you make it somewhere else and then mm -hmm. you know, if you make it in the u.s suddenly you're embraced as, as a kind of canadian hero or whatever we're, we're very suspicious of our own uh, art scene and our own culture in general um and i don't yeah i don't know i don't know where that comes from i don't know if it's an inferiority complex i don't know if it's just how we we're not we're sort of not very critical about our own stuff we just sort of i used to hang out with a bunch of stand-up comedians and uh, uh name names <laughs> no no um i don't even know if any of them are still it was it was quite a while ago i don't know if any of them are still doing it but you know they would on a regular basis engage in this masochistic process of going up in, in a bar and just one by one performing their sets to people who were not listening to them at all and not engaging with them at all and not, you know, and some Feels of them very were, familiar. Were, yep. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe you've had this experience, yes. but there's, there's this, yeah, I, I do think there's a kind of Canadian impulse. That's just like, okay, you've done it. Good for you, I guess you've shown, but there, we're not hypercritical of each other's work. So we're not really pushing each other to, be better in a way which makes it very comfortable because we're not being attacked but you at the can't same be time, mean but you certainly can't be nice yeah you can't be mean or nice and so it's sort of you know it's it's an environment where it's hard for people to get passionate i think about art mm -hmm. you're not tearing anyone down but you're not really paying attention to them they're just it's just sort of happening it's like technically a thing that we do and i you know thanks for showing up kind of like that that's sort of our attitude towards canadian artists whereas if you know I went to the Edinburgh uh, yeah. Fringe. Fringe Festival many years ago. And it's like, if you are not doing a good job as a stand-up comedian, someone is going to throw a full beer at your head. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not, if you have the gall to get up on stage and try and do comedy, like, you have to be so good or they're going to completely eviscerate you maybe literally and uh, you know that <laughs> there are advantages and disadvantages to both approaches but i think the disadvantage is that we uh kind of are pretty apathetic about our own our own art scene i don't want to keep you too much longer we have like two more questions sure. uh and uh you've already been like more than generous than with your time like this is you've you've been on with us for almost uh like 50 minutes now uh i'm gonna cut this up by the way don't worry um <laughs> But... I have been generous. <laughs> You're not I'm a giant. I'm Don't a... cut out this table flip. So we also had a question from our previous interviewee, Trevor Henderson, the uh, the artist, monster artist, and you know he he wanted to ask. He said, "I'm I'm sure you get questions about you know uh, David Cronenberg's career all the time, but like setting that aside, what's your relationship to body horror, which is a theme that does come up in your work?" And you know, how do you use it to get at the themes that you're interested in? And it's really it just I want to add something to that question, because it's really interesting the way you talk about manipulating images, but you're manipulating it like either within the camera or within the way that that image is being shown, uh, which I, I do feel is different from, um, you know, the way that body horror is usually done, where it's usually a lot of prosthetics. It's usually a lot of like, you know, very intense or realistic, like malformations on a, on a thing that is that is, you know, center stage mm -hmm. yeah for sure i mean I, I normally avoid talking about my father's work because it it ends up uh yeah. it ends up being the whole article but since this is a podcast i'll just you know i'll let it slide um, <laughs> <laughs> um well, we, we like i honestly no, 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 i'm no, not no, even no. interested in you talking about that i want to hear your relationship i his, and that was no, 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 no. Thing. <laughs> yeah. but there's something I, 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 no no it's cool i'm, I'm just being a dick um <laughs> well no because the thing is his you know, he, he obviously essentially invented the genre. And um, one of the things, you know, about his filmmaking style is it's very much about not feeling the camera. You know, the, there are no zooms, for instance, in his films. Uh, and when he's doing hallucination stuff, it's not about manipulating the quality of the image. It's really about what's going on uh, in, in front of the camera. And I think with body horror, that that sort of set the tone for body. It's very, it's very much about you know puppets with skin flowing into skin and, and, and yeah. that kind of stuff which i like but it's very it's not um it's playing with the content rather than the form you know mm -hmm. and then that's sort of the tradition mm -hmm. tradition there and that's kind of you know i, I know his approach and, and what he you know established as, as that kind of uh that that part of the genre um it's interesting i don't 
I know there are sort of body horror beats in my films. I feel like people are maybe a, a bit quick to classify them as body horror because of my, my name. I, I don't feel like it's mm-hmm. it's not totally unjustified. There is there is sort of body manip- manipulation stuff in the films, but it's less specifically the focus. I mean, I think my interest in it is probably similar to uh, the pleasure of that genre or, or, or why that stuff is effective is because we have these relationships with our bodies and those are central to our experiences as, as human beings. You know, that's regardless of whether you, you want to be a kind of physicalist, you know, you, you are your body kind of person or, or whether there's there's some kind of uh, duality that you see there with a body and mind still we're dealing with our bodies every day and we're dealing with our bodies aging and we're dealing with the you know the good things and the bad things and so you know filmmaking like most narrative art forms when it's narrative is a, about in some way what it is to be a human being and, and what it is to, to to have a human experience so much of that is our body and so you know, the body turning against us is an easy you know is an easy but effective form of horror and a way to explore horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in my stuff, it's it's like, you know, there's less of a focus specifically on that kind of body horror. And it's it's like Voss having a penis during sex. It's really, you know, it, her, her relationship with her body, experiencing this other body. These things are downstream from the dissolution of identity. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's you know, when you make something unfamiliar, out of something familiar suddenly you look at it with a different perspective oh yeah what is it to what is it to have sex in your body you know it's something we might not examine really (laughs) all the time but in a film if you you just sort of skew it in a a certain way and you're like you know what imagine you're in somebody else's body having sex what would you how you know suddenly you can talk about sexuality in your own body or in, pe- in people's relationships with their bodies and sex and so to me i guess that's the it's uh, the impulse t- towards that kind mm-hmm. of stuff so it's like a tool to get at the ideas about identity and ideas about how we interact and how our relationships are formed like w- within ourselves like I, I i you know when you mentioned this thing about there being very few body horror beats i started thinking through it and i was like oh yeah there's only like two things that i would i would directly classify as body horror in your films and I, I think it's you know that final scene in antiviral uh which is a great scene and one of the both like like just like one of those perfect super funny and super like gross horrifying moments where like you're just i was just sitting there i'm just like don't drink the blood caleb <laughs> don't don't do it I know no, you watch buddy, it, but don't, don't do it blood. don't drink don't the blood off drink the... that blood you know, you, know, like you drink this blood the day that we shot that was the day that I met Caleb's dad. Like <laughs> <laughs> Caleb's dad, he's from the, the, Caleb's from Texas, and his dad is like a very large man with a huge beard and a cowboy hat. And he he came to set, and he's just towering over me as this massive guy, and I don't know him. And is and then I'm just like, oh shit. Son, you making my boy drink blood? Well, but well, I also Caleb, if you you gonna make him drink blood, you better make sure he does it real sexual like. <laughs> well, Caleb, he's dropping to his knees and sucking on it, and I have to be like, Caleb, suck the flesh tube harder. Like you've got it. And his dad's there, and I thought he was gonna kill me, and that he, but his dad's really nice and like a really funny guy. And he just sort of turned to me, and was like, "You have um, quite the imagination." <laughs> oh my god, that is the. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad that he was there to see that happen. I also also this takes us back. I wanted to bring every something father up, right? for every son should have that moment. Yeah, you need to make a movie for every father and every son. So that's a lot of movies, but you got to do it. <laughs> but this this brings me I wanted to mention something to you because I thought you would at least enjoy this little little bit of our shared history. So I I first interviewed uh, Brandon, I first interviewed you like 11 years ago after Antiviral came out. I saw it. I was like, this is great. Um, and I asked you to come to this club that I ran at uh, U of T. And it was like a club for for a student club. And it was just, just like, come and give a talk. And there were there were a few people and we were just like chatting about like, I think we were talking like, I remember talking about like Yorgos Lanthimos and you were talking about how at, at one point on Antiviral, there was, you know, it, it was really a tough tough shoot and then one day you you guys all got to like smear blood on the walls and that was like the best day of filming um but i wanted to tell you this that club did not exist 
that was that was just me. I I I formed a club that was just me, and then I gave it a fancy sounding name, and I used that to get people to come in and talk to me about art that they were making, so that I could learn things. And then I and then I would I would send out like a call, and I was like really happy that you came, and I was like fuck, now I got to get like an audience. And then I like just like went and like sent out a message to people like come see come to this event, come to this event. Okay, but is this a real podcast? What's, I mean, that's that's a great <laughs> it, it remains to be seen. Is and, any and podcast episodes. a real podcast? That's actually. Yeah. <laughs> certainly not a canadian one uh, <laughs> but i wanted to share that with you because uh i yeah i just I, I i thought you would enjoy hearing that i i tricked you 12 years ago and now we're having a real conversation for real people i appreciate your honesty and your guile that's the, you know. <laughs> it worked surprisingly well i got <laughs> I, I tricked like 12 people i got called that's, mockery that's uh, amazing yeah, thank you well done Thanks. So we're at the end. Um, I'd love to hear if you've got anything to plug. Uh, if anyone out there is listening who controls a is a production company or a distribution hub, uh, make Supercan, please. But other than that, um, uh, what are you what are you up to? Yeah, not not a huge amount. Yeah, Supercan again. We're working on that. Um, I have a space horror film called Dragon that I'm working on as well. But it's also you know. Hell yeah. Neither of those things are locked in. I really hope I'm going to make them. Um, yeah, sadly, not a huge amount to plug. If you happen to be in the U.S., we just put out the uncut Infinity Pool. Oh, uh, there, is so. that the one that I saw? That's the one. That would have been the one that you saw too. It, yeah. Go see it. It fucking it kicks ass. It's so good. Um, oh, it fucks. And, it fucks, <laughs> it fucks, it stabs, it does all sorts of things. It fucks, it sucks, it does all the things. Yeah, but it's also a particularly good theater watch. Um, and I will mm. I will say that uh, that was probably the best movie I've seen in theaters this year. And I saw Miyazaki, so uh, that that's, that's, that's good stuff. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think that's everything. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, just like that was, that, it was really nice talking to you again after uh, a dozen years. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks. Excited to yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for having. Thanks for having me. Yeah. That's great.